Well, Brad Wilcox is Professor of Sociology, Director of the National Marriage Project, and is the Future of Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. He's a renowned expert in family studies, uh, including co-author of Why Marriage Matters, 30 Conclusions from the Social Sciences. He's also got a book coming out next February, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families and Save Civilization. So place your orders for that one. Brad and I met briefly at a international organization for marriage gathering in Washington, D.C., 2014. So it was a while ago. But the Institute for Family Studies has just published a report he co-authored entitled Do Two Parents Matter More Than Ever? Brad, lovely to have you. Um, welcome to New Zealand virtually. Hopefully we can get you out here one day. And have you actually visited New Zealand? Yeah. No, the closest I've been is Sydney. So I, you know, I would okay. love to visit. I've heard good things about beautiful things about your country. So yes. Okay. Now, uh, your latest report. Can you just give us sort of a brief synopsis of what it what it says? Yeah, Bob. So what we see in this, you know, research, and I think you kind of you're well aware of the fact that we know that kids on average do better in two parent families than they do in single parent families. And what we're though discovering now, both with our research and, and summarizing other research that's been done of late, is that kind of the sort of the benefit of marriage seems to be growing. And so we see in this new report is that the kind of the link between coming from an intact family and graduating, you know, college is greater for millennials than it was for boomers in this series of national surveys called the NLSY here in the US. And the same thing is true for kind of reaching the middle class or higher. We see a stronger link for uh, young adults coming from intact families among the millennial generation compared to the baby boomers. And there's other research that's come out recently, too, indicating, for instance, the links between family structure and school suspensions has gotten stronger in the last 16 years. And NYU research talking about there's more income volatility for single parents, you know, recently in the U.S. than farther back. So just on a number of fronts, Bob, I think what we're seeing is like this idea that um, it's quite possible that having the benefit of a married family in your corner is stronger now than it was, you know, 16 or 20 or 30 years ago. And that's not what a lot of people expected. They thought and I wrote about this in the City Journal, which is a prominent American publication, you know, a lot of people thought that as we became more tolerant of family diversity, we'd see kind of the benefit of an intact family declining or the sort of the, mm. the downsides to family instability, you know, uh, becoming smaller. But we're not seeing that with these uh, new findings on the on the horizon here. Okay, but one of the arguments might be that marriage rates have declined. Uh, and so it's just that people who are more likely to stick it out and do it better are getting married. So therefore it's making it look better. Is there any um, merit to that argument? Yeah. It, well, it's certainly true that marriage, Bob Wright, is more selective today. And so the kinds of people who are getting married today are more educated, more affluent and more religious, you know, one of those groups um, mm. compared to, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But even when we control for those kinds of factors, we do see that the benefits of coming from an intact family are stronger for the millennial generation compared to the baby boomers. So, yeah, that's a great concern, but we do control for those factors in this new research brief from IFS. Now, one thing that I was pleased to see was that uh, you argued that dads today are more involved in their kids' lives than they used to be. 
Uh, and right. that's got to be a positive, especially with all the research you've done on the effect of fatherlessness. Yeah, so kind of trying to think about why would it be the case that having the benefit of two parents would be kind of more valuable for our kids today than it was, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And we hypothesize a couple of reasons in this research brief from IFS. And one is just that dads are more involved uh, today than was the case, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, um, or when I grew up, you know, back in the 1970s and 80s. So, um, so that's sort of one theory. A second theory is that, you know, we see there's kind of a, an income premium for married couples today. They tend to be that much better off financially than their, their unmarried peers um, mm -hmm. today for a variety of reasons. So there's kind of an income benefit to marriage. It seems to be bigger. And then I also would say too, that we're seeing more kind of low conflict divorces in the last you know 20 or 30 years where, you know, mom and dad weren't really kind of um, there was no violence, you know, there was no screaming fits, you know, one after another, just, you know, someone drifted apart or something like that. And it looks like those kinds of divorces can be particularly challenging, harmful, you know, for kids They can't really make sense of why mom and dad are, are splitting up. So that could be another factor that would make kind of the effect of divorce, you know, for kids, you know, more salient recently than it would have been the case say the 1970s, for instance, as well. One more thing we don't talk about, but I think is also just worth putting on the table is that we have seen a decline in the United States, probably the same thing's true for New Zealand, in religious and secular forms of civic engagement, you know, participation. Yeah. And so what that means kind of practically for kids, right, is that there are fewer other adults, other communities that would be kind of with them and for them. Um, if their family is unstable. So that could also be part of the reason why having the benefit of married parents today is, is perhaps more viable for kids because there, there are fewer other alternative sources of community for our kids today. Yeah, you also make the point that the rise in divorce and family breakdown over the last half century means that children are experiencing this rising number of low conflict separations. I mean, right. that must have a greater impact on children when, I mean, when you see that high conflict, in some ways they feel safer uh, when there is a separation, but when there's low conflict, when there just seems to be uh, a dislike between their parents, I mean, is, is the message that parents who are struggling to like each other still need to stick at it for the sake of the kids? Yeah, you know, when I talk about kind of the negative effects of divorce on children, you know, critics, people who are kind of wondering about the idea often will say, well, are you saying that, you know, kids in, in abusive situations or kids in, you know, deeply conflicted households should just, you know, stick with everything? Is that sort of the answer here? The parents should just, you know, kind of bite the bullet. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the research from people like Bob Emery, my colleague here at the University of Virginia, Paul Amato at Penn State Emeritus, is that they distinguish between high conflict, you know, mm -hmm. households and low conflict households. Mm -hmm. And it's true that in those high conflict households, it's better for the kids from their research for mom and dad to part ways to separate. But in those lower conflict situations, Bob, you know, when maybe there's been, um, you know, one sort of spouse has gotten depressed or one spouse feels like they've grown apart from the other spouse or there's, you know, some other kind of problem or disappointment or, you know, um, challenge that's emerged, um, it's in those sort of lower conflict situations that it looks like it's better for the the kids. If that's your number one priority, 
to kind of reconcile, work on your marriage and stick it out. And of course, there are plenty of pop cultural examples here now too. We have uh, in the US, for instance, a big Netflix movie called The Marriage Story, where you had two kind of, you know, folks, husband and wife living in New York, her her career moves to LA, his doesn't. And there's no real reason for them to get divorced, but they end up getting divorced, you know? So this is kind of a prime sort of example of what this might look like in practice today, you know, a situation where they kind of put their son's welfare in in the movie (laughs) at the bottom of the ledger and get divorced because their careers are going in different directions Mm -hmm. um, and they can't kind of keep it all together. So I'm guessing that if I ask, should the government promote marriage, you'll say yes. So maybe I'll ask, why should the government promote marriage when there's other forms available? Well, you know, when it comes to family life, there's just nothing, you know, compared to marriage. When it, you know, when it comes to kind of giving kids and adults stability, um, we see that cohabiting households are just much more likely to end up, you know, in a breakup. And it, we see that people experience more happiness and more commitment um, in marriage compared to cohabitation. So there's just kind of no alternative out there. And then, of course, to speak more broadly, what we see is that from the perspective of things like prosperity and happiness, there's just no question, even though the media is often telling us otherwise, and now social media is often telling we're seeing now, it's interesting. When I, when I finished up the book, I talked about a Bloomberg story that was saying that women who avoided marriage and motherhood were richer. Of course, that was false. We know that married moms are actually richer than single childless women in the real world with the data. But and there's been a lot of that kind of talk from kind of the left, you know, and the mainstream media here in the U.S. But now we're seeing from the, sort of what I call the red pill right, people like Andrew Tate and Pearl Davis, mm-hmm. pretty big online platforms. They're attacking marriage, you know, from sort of from the right, saying it's a bad deal for men. But what both of these different perspectives, both on kind of on the left and, and the right, sort of don't appreciate is that for the average guy, the average gal, there's just no question that there's more prosperity and more happiness. Uh, there, but you know, for instance, married women and men in the US are about twice as likely to be very happy compared to their unmarried peers. So that's sort of the, the first point. But then the final point here I would just make in terms of that question. The civilizational point is that we know the communities that have strong marriages are much more likely to have low crime rates and high levels we call economic mobility, which means kind of going from say poverty to wealth as from, as you know, across the life course, growing up poor as a child, becoming rich as an adult. When you're surrounded by two parent families, your odds of kind of rising in the US, we know from our studies work at Harvard are much higher. Whereas when you're surrounded by lots of single parent families, you're much more likely to stay stuck in poverty. So this is just kind of a number of the examples that we could talk about, you know, that tell us why marriage matters for kids, uh, for adults, and for communities. So in terms of cohabitation, I mean, the argument is, look, if we live together, we're committed to each other. What's it matter if we walk up the aisle, whether we call it marriage? what does the research say about the stickability of cohabitation as opposed to marriage? So in the United States, uh, couples, for instance, who don't get married and just cohabit are about twice as likely to break up by the time their child turns around 10. So mm. that's kind of one example. But I think that the, the way to explain this to people is just to think about kind of the terms of entry. 
right? And so we see when it comes to cohabitation is that most couples just kind of drift into cohabitation. You know, they might share, you know, the same apartment a couple of weekends initially per month, and then maybe have a couple of clothes that they, you know, are crossing between apartments, and then they just kind of move in at some point. But what's interesting is when you ask, you know, cohabiting couples in the U.S., like, do you have a date when you kind of made it official? Um, often you'll find that number one, they don't. And then number two, if like they're asked to guess, you know, guesstimate that date, you know, each partner would have a different date, right? There's no like gathering of friends and family in that apartment hallway, you know, looking on with, you know, glances of admiration with music, a ceremony, you know, for that first night of cohabitation where we all know that a wedding, whether you're religious or secular is an entirely different affair. Right. And so we're social animals and we actually derive a lot of meaning from large rituals. And so one way to think about how marriage and cohabitation are different is to understand and appreciate that one is done in a large collective ritual and one is not. One is done when you've got family and friends looking on, kind of buying in. You're you're kind of taking a public vow. And we know that means a lot for human beings to do that public vow. And the other context is just done, you know, maybe on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday morning um, with no one looking on, no one kind of like holding you to account for entering into this relationship. And so it's for these kinds of reasons that marriage ends up meaning a lot more to people, even secular people. And why we see even more stability for married couples in the most progressive parts of the world, like Northern Europe. So anyways, marriage is just, it's a different thing. It's, it's a social thing. It's a legal thing. It's a cultural thing. It just gives people's um, relationships a lot more meaning, purpose, and direction than cohabitation does. Does uh, cohabiting before getting married undo some of the benefits of marriage? So the research on this is complicated. So what we see is that for couples who, in the U.S. anyways, couples who, who cohabit only after an engagement, which of course is a public ritual in a sense, it's a public sign to the you know to the couple themselves and to their friends and family that they are now you know really an item on the on the road to marriage. For, for folks who do that, there's no kind of increased risk of divorce. Um, but for couples who are cohabiting prior to a public engagement, and for couples who have multiple cohabitations with someone besides their future spouse, um, we see a greater risk of divorce. And the more partners you have prior to marriage, the more likely you are to see your own marriage end in divorce. So the way I kind of think about this is that kind of the closer your approach to entering into marriage approximates sort of the classic model about how best to do things, the more likely you are to enjoy a stable marriage and also actually a happy marriage, because we know, too, that couples who move slowly towards marriage in terms of, you know, making an effort to establish a degree of, of friendship, you know, trust and security, and who don't move quickly, either emotionally or physically into their relationship are much more likely to be happily married as well. So there's obviously difference of opinion as to, you know, being uh, pro the institution of marriage and uh, more liberal towards it. Is that divide based on a liberal viewpoint versus conservative, or is it uh, the difference between educated versus uneducated? Is it a rich versus poorer issue? Yeah, there's actually multiple, I would say, axes of, you know, um, cultural influence here. So, um 
we, we do know that people who are more religious tend to have a more what I call familistic mindset or a more marriage, you know, friendly mindset. They tend to accord marriage a high degree of importance. They tend to agree kind of an ethical marital permanence, a, a, a great degree of value. Um, it's also the case of people who are more conservative in general are more likely today to take those same kinds of, of positions and having a more, you know, family first or more marriage minded approach to your own relationship mm. is associated with better outcomes in your marriage. Um, so that's one thing to note, but there's also a class divide, as you know, and so people who are more educated tend to move more slowly into their relationships more deliberately looking more for that friendship um, before settling in with someone and on the front end that sort of slower tempo is you know is better um yeah. so i think that's in part why um, more educated folks tend to have uh, more stable marriages another of course important point to make here is that we see that couples where the husband is stably employed do better and couples where they have um large joint assets in, in the US, it's typically a home together, are more likely to be stable married, which helps to explain the class divide as well. So yeah. if you're to kind of simplify what I'm saying, you would say to say there's a cultural story and a class story. And to be more concrete in my forthcoming book uh, for HarperCollins, Get Married, I find that well-educated conservatives and well-educated religious Americans have the strongest and most stable marriages because they have the benefit of that kind of more family first mindset, mm. as well as the benefit of more income and more assets and a stably employed husband. Okay. So the statement is made that uh, the negative effects we see from divorce will disappear as the stigma associated with divorce and the obsession with marriage diminishes is there any truth to that is it is the yeah, that's it, divorce right. so, because... <laughs> yeah no so in this piece that i wrote for a city journal again it's sort of a you know prominent american online platform and actually there's also anyways i i recounted a story i was at an academic conference a year ago in maine and talking on the way down hiking down a mountain in maine um with uh, the wife of a colleague at this academic conference and she was saying you know isn't isn't it the case now that you know, marriage is less important for our kids because we're more tolerant today, more accepting of, you know, different family situations and all this kind of stuff. And I said to her, well, you know, I, I, as I sort of read the, read the data, I think that sort of the, the association or the sort of the effect or the power of a stable, you know, married family is about as strong, you know, today as it was mm -hmm. 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, again, it was a year, almost a year and a half ago that I had this conversation with this woman. Um, and then since then, you know, we've done research at Institute for Family Studies, and we've, you know, picked up on research done by others at NYU, um, at Vanderbilt and other institutions, kind of mm. picking up with different kinds of outcomes, this this common pattern, and that is that the the trend is running exactly against her assumption on that trail yeah. in Maine. One of the arguments might be, well, uh, Brad, this is um, particular to the United States um, setting, but it's not that relevant to European countries, Australia, New Zealand, UK. What's your response to that? So I have done some work on educational trends and single parent versus two parent um, you know, patterns in kids' educational outcomes and find that sort of the basic story is pretty similar across um, more developed nations when it comes to a number of educational outcomes. So my, you know, my hypothesis, Bob, would be that 
you know, the story that I'm telling you would be roughly applicable to New Zealand. Um, but I don't have any data, you know, right, you know, right now from New Zealand and would obviously want you or your colleagues or scholars in the country to, um, you know, to replicate this. But um, I also have, you know, colleagues in the United Kingdom who find certainly that the, the effect of family structure has not diminished in the UK. Um, and they continue to find that, you know, kids from intact two parent families in the UK are doing much better than their peers from step families or from single parent families in the UK. So yeah. again, my hypothesis is that the story that I'm telling is possibly quite relevant for, for you down there in New Zealand. Well, you'll find actually that uh, if you look at solo uh, one parent families, that actually New Zealand is competing with the US for the highest rate. So uh, yeah. we're not doing too well there. So th this is why the message is so important. You refer to uh, the hypocrisy amongst the societal elites. I note that the yeah. elites is in the title of your book. What do you mean by right. that? You know, it's funny when my first, my, my kind of, my new title was sort of trending on Twitter a little bit and um, some prominent uh, journalists were basically kind of taking fire at me, sort of saying, you know, Brad, what are you talking about? The elites have stable marriages. Why would anyone want to defy the elites here? Mm -hmm. My point is, it's not about what they're doing. <laughs> it's what they're saying. Saying. Mm -hmm. And the irony here is that my my chief critic on, you know, when my book was title was kind of coming onto Twitter, was that he himself had written a piece, I think back in 2014, kind of basically kind of poo-pooing the idea that marriage's decline in the US was of any consequence. Now, it's since then, he's actually become a bit more marriage-friendly, thankfully, but he was one of the first guys on Twitter to say, you know, a few months ago, What's, what are you talking about, Brad? I mean, the elites are doing fine. Mm -hmm. And my point, again, is that when we talk about kind of how, you know, outlets like Vox, where he used to write, the New York Times, uh, talk about, you know, public school superintendents in the United States, talk about you know, um, pop culture, folks who are producing, you know, movies and, and TV shows in the US, when they kind of enter into sort of the public square with their thoughts about marriage and family, they tend to take a very progressive, you know, position that all family forms are equally valuable. There's been no decline in sort of the quality and character of family life, that marriage isn't that important. So that's sort of the public message, but of course the private practice from these folks, including my my critic online, about a month and a half ago, is marriage first, baby carriage second, and you stay married, right? So my critic, you know, on, online, you know, is married, yeah, still married, you know, has a child, <laughs> very conventional family life, but yeah. yet you know he's writing about this you know whole issue back in the in the middle of the 2010s, have been taking yeah. a very progressive position. Yeah. Now, um, look, at about the same time, there was a new book that came out, which I've uh, just got a copy on my desk to read. It's called The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Uh, Melissa Kearney, who's a professor of economics at the University of Maryland, um, I mean, she won't be coming from a conservative viewpoint, which I think is why she got quite a bit of uh, media coverage. Have you read the book and would you recommend it? Yeah, it's a great it's a great book. And yeah, Melissa Kearney is also a fellow at the Brookings Institution, as you know, a center left major think tank here in mm -hmm. the United States. Uh, yeah. She's not a conservative, but she is, um, you know, very committed to sort of following the data wherever it may lead. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, as an economist and a scholar and someone who's concerned about the welfare of children, um, you know, thought that it was just a high time for someone to sort of tell the truth, which is that number one, kids are more likely to flourish when they're raised by, you know, two married parents. Um, number two, we are seeing this growing marriage divide in the U.S. and probably New Zealand's the same story as well, yeah. where our elites get and stay married and working class mm-hmm. and poor Americans do not. Um, where a majority of kids who are uh, raised by college educated parents in the U.S. will be raised by stably married parents. And a majority of kids who are raised by non-college educated parents in the U.S. will experience some kind of family mm-hmm. instability, breakdown, single parent cohabitation, whatever it might be. And how this is contributing to growing social and economic divisions in the United States as well. So, um, you know, we see, for instance, divides when it comes to college graduation, divides when it comes to incarceration, you know, divides when it comes to people's prospects economically, you know, from childhood to young adulthood. And she's just saying that all these divides are going to keep growing unless and until we can make marriage as common for working class and poor Americans as we have made it for um, or we've left it for upper middle class yeah. Americans. Yeah. So that's, you know, kind of her story. And she also comments too at the beginning of her book about how when she's raised the issue among economists, there's kind of an awkward silence. No one wants to kind of publicly, mm-hmm. and they all, you know, in fact, she, she recalls in a recent interview that she was kind of mentioning the issue to a, a male colleague. And he's like, yeah, Melissa, why are you talking about this? And, you know, it's just like kind of not, it's, you know, mm-hmm. not very fashionable was kind of his no. point. And she's like, you know, she didn't give us this name. But she's like, you know, my friend is always complaining about how he has to spend all this time with his kids. And she's like, you know, it's like he's doing one activity, another activity, et cetera. It's like he's living, you know, a very conventional life as a married father, super engaged with his kids. Mm-hmm. And yet he doesn't want to say anything in public about the benefit of this, you know, very pattern that his own kids benefit from. Mm-hmm you know, for the larger conversation among economists, which is, you know, I think she's basically, she's sort of fed up with the fact that her, her peers are so reluctant to just tell the truth about family and, mm. and welfare of kids. Brad, just finally, what, what's your, enc- I mean, you've researched the benefits of marriage uh, and the importance of it, but what's your encouragement to solo parents watching this and even step families, but you know, especially parents who are doing it alone, who may be thinking, well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be in that situation, but I'm not. So, you know, am I, you know, is it just a uphill right. battle for me? Well, I think that's a great question, Bob. So I was raised by a single mom. And I, I think one thing that I would say is that it's important just to acknowledge in these discussions that most kids raised by single parents turn out okay. We know obviously plenty of examples of people who were raised by single parents who turned out fine. So that's one, you know, point of um of hope there for that mm-hmm. for a single mom or a single father, for instance, in, in your audience. I think I would also say that it's important as a parent to try to, you know, even when your kids are acting up or they're upset, you know, because of some something's happened, you know, in your family or in their lives, trying to kind of um keep a hold on your own emotions. Cause I think over time you know, kids will notice that and kind of as they become more mature, they'll, you know, be able to handle whatever trauma they, they face. I have a, a good friend who was divorced unwillingly. He was a great dad and had a lot of trauma and drama with his teenage daughters when this divorce was happening, but now they're in their twenties and he's got a great relationship with all three of his daughters and two of them are successfully married. And, 
But I think a lot of us just that he was, he worked really hard to kind of keep his emotional equilibrium, you know, in the middle, yeah. unlike, you know, some divorced folks. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think served him well. Um, and the third thing that I would say is just look for community that's supportive of you and your children. Um, I'm Catholic and would encourage people who have a religious bone in their body to kind of join a local congregation and expose their kids to um, adults who are going to care about them and also going to model for them, you know, a healthy uh, family life. So that's one way I think to kind of overcome the the challenges that that you face as a single parent and your kids face as, you know, um, being raised without the benefit of married parents. Well, Brad, we really appreciate your work. I know it's the uh, gold standard. I, I watch and all. In fact, if people do want to sort of uh, read a bit more of what you've been writing and researching, what's the best way to follow you? Well, they can actually get the book at Get Married at HarperCollins, and then they can follow me on Twitter at Brad Wilcox. IFS is my handle for uh, for Twitter. Those are two places to go to get uh, more of this kind of um, this kind of commentary, yeah. but in a more formal way. Yeah. Okay. And Get Married comes out next February. Was that correct? Valentine's Day, basically. Yeah, it's the day Ooh. before Valentine's Day. That was Harper's <laughs> decision. They wanted to kind of you know yeah. position it for that time of the year. Well, that is great timing. So let's hope it's a bestseller. Brad, really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully more Kiwis are aware of your work now, which will be a great thing. So thanks very much. Okay, thanks, Bob. I appreciate it.